Welcome to Centering, the podcast on Asian American Christianity. I'm your host, Irene Cho. This season, we're featuring guests with various perspectives on Asian American topics and the church. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back, everyone, to Centering Podcast. We are so excited to have you back. I'm your host, Irene Cho, and I am joined by two phenomenal, brilliant women who I absolutely adore, and I pretty much stalk and always want to just poke in with their brilliance and gain more knowledge and wisdom. So I'm so excited to have them be part of the episode today. We are embarking on a subject matter that is extremely sensitive and yet very relevant at the same time. We are talking about surviving and dealing with toxic white spaces. A lot of us who are Asian American, we work in organizations, church environments in which sometimes we're the only person of color, we're the only Asian representative, and it's really difficult at times. I continually get questions about the language, what I eat, my culture, how things are, and asked in a way that isn't always humanizing and is frequently patronizing and just degrading sometimes to who I am, my personhood, my identity, my leadership, etc. So we just felt this season that this is an extremely relative topic for a whole bunch of us who are working in these spaces. And that is why in particular, I have invited these two amazing ladies to join us for this conversation. So today I am joined by Nikita. And Joyce. So Nikita, why don't you go first and introduce us, let us let our audience know a bit about who you are. Hi everyone. So my name is Nikita. I work in tech. I've been at big software companies, small software companies, and I also spend a lot of time or uh, working with Christian organizations in their tech and supporting them in that field. On the side, I do a lot of race and gender and social justice type writing and research. And I do that through a food Instagram called Joy Homemade because everything is a little bit easier to swallow when you have delicious <laughs> food. And if you go read my blog, most of it's about race and gender and cultural issues, but I think all of it goes hand in hand. So for me, it's all kind of wrapped up in one. I love it. And Joyce, please do tell us a little bit about yourself. I am currently a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary, hopefully soon to be not a candidate anymore. <laughs> soon to be doctor. Um, in intercultural studies in particular. And... Let's see. Before that, I was in full-time ministry for 15 years and have been in youth ministry specifically for over 20 years. I lost count after 20. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but a lot of them, a lot of that time has been around Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, specifically Southeast Asians and Filipinos, as well as African American and Latina teen moms in the last few years that I was in full-time ministry. So that's kind of my adult life in a nutshell. And I'm Korean. I just feel like for this topic in particular, some of the nuances needs to be talked about. So I'm Korean, which we would consider in the category of East Asian. Nikita, what is your ethnicity? I am from South India, so South Asian. Uh, I'm a second-gen immigrant, so my parents arrived about two months before I was born in the U.S. Um, I am Filipino-American. My parents came here in the late 60s, and I was born in L.A. 
Great. So let's kind of dive in because we have a lot to cover to solve this problem of surviving and dealing in toxic white spaces <laughs> in a 30 minute episode. So I just want to kind of dive straight in and ask from both of your experiences, what has been the most difficult issue or issues that you've had to deal with while working in predominantly white spaces in the tech company and in academia for some of us, our church spaces, but what has been some of the most difficult issues for both of you? Probably in academia and also in working for a large Christian organization, not being seen has been my, my largest issue and I think Nikita mentioned it, it, race and gender are hand in hand. Like I can't separate that out for me. So I actually race, gender and height. So sometimes I can't tell are you overlooking me because you're literally six feet tall and I'm literally five um, or <laughs> overlooking me for other, you know, gender, race and gender issues. So that, that tends to be the, the common theme, either overlooked, not seen or under undervalued or underestimated. So kind of all of those it, put together. So I have a story from when I first started working. Uh, Our VP flew in from California and was like, let me meet the team. And everybody got a chance to like talk to him about their favorite food, what their life goals are, what they like love about tech. And for me, we had our meeting and he was a super old white dude. And he literally said to me, Indian women tend to be mousy. Here's a list of all the Indian people in our organization just so you feel comfortable. And that was our whole meeting. And I was oh like, you met me. I'm like really outspoken and pretty outgoing. So, okay, cool. And I remember telling people and feeling like, wow, this one man is like this, but it's been six years. I've switched jobs a couple times. And I think that that has followed me, even if it's not that word, but that same idea of I'm five, two, I'm a Brown woman. And I think all of it wraps up too. It's like this thing where you are always taking up less space and expected to take up less space than your counterparts for whatever reason. And so I feel like it puts you in this dehumanizing cycle where you start by being overlooked. You're not really seen as a full person. And even if it's as simple as you have to work harder to be seen for the same thing, but then you, if you do get that attention, it seems like special treatment, even though you did your hard work. Yes. And then when you do really well and you kill it, they're like, oh my God, I'm so shocked. And it's like, but I was doing this the whole time. Like, it's almost like you can never, if you succeed, you're, you get, you aren't succeeding in a way or you're like, okay, well, this sucks that you're so shocked. And then you go through this cycle of like, nothing will ever be enough and you get burned out and kind of maybe you started a new company and you try that cycle again. And sometimes it goes slow and sometimes it goes fast, but it's basically like this circle cycle of dehumanizing and feeling you'll never be enough, but you're also killing it at the same time. And it's just a really confusing emotional experience. I feel like. Absolutely. I think for me as a Korean too, it's, I'm not as petite as both of you. Um, I'm five, six. And I tend to, I think, appear taller than I am. I also love my heels. Um, I haven't been able to wear them as frequently after I'm getting sick, but I used to be famous for my heels. And so I, and especially being in youth ministry, which is a very male dominated world in particular, a lot of my environment was very much surrounded by Koreans 
And so I was very conscientious of my posture all the time to take up space. So Joyce, you know, and both you and Nikita talking about the space issue, I think, you know, being a woman in the early 90s in this male dominated ministry world, I I remember reading a novel, I forget which novel it was, where the woman like squared her shoulders and walked into a room. And I remember as a 10th grader thinking, that's what I need to do. And so I consciously forced myself to make my posture better as a 15-year-old. And that that for me was one of my tools that I had to do. But a lot of it has been the same stereotypical response, which is, you're so vocal, Irene. You're so aggressive. You're so forthright. You're so not Asian. And it's been a lot of that going on all the time. And yet, in the midst of my processing of who I am and my own personality and how much of the way that I lead or the way that I speak is natural versus adapted, that's been really interesting for me. Because I think the first time I experienced what it was like to work in a white space, it was for an organization, a national organization. I was doing guest boothing for them at a conference. It was for a very large conference. There were like 20,000 people. I was young. I was 23. I'd never really kind of gone out on my own without a team. And I was the outsider of this team. Very white-led. There were like five people on the team. They're all white people. And they did not, you know, they were so terrible at being hosts. Like I get dropped off in this place. I don't know where I'm going. I wasn't given directions. You know, I was kind of fumbling around. And then I ended up being separated. They all got a hotel room together. I was on campus needing to like shuffle back and forth and then got, it was just the worst five days of my life. And I remember thinking, and I got sick in the middle of it. Like I had massive stomach pains and at the end of it, they were like, why didn't you say something to us? And I, I remember looking at them going, you invited me to be your guest and join the team. It's your job. Like you're being bad hosts. And later I'm realizing that's my Asian upbringing. It was this like, you were just terrible host people. And I would never have experienced this in my Korean community, you know, like to just abandon somebody and not be like, oh, come and sit. And are you getting fed? Are you like, how's it going? You know, it just all the normal checkmark questions, it never happened. And I I think, you know, I'm a very autonomous person. I never feel lonely. That was the first time I missed my mom. And I remember coming back home and landing at the airport. And I think the only other time this happened was like freshman year of college. And she greeted me and I I broke into tears when she like hugged me and said, how are you doing? And it it was just this shocking realization that I had been so traumatized for five days of needing to struggle through this without any, you know, guidance or whatsoever. And so it's been a lot of processing for me because I there was something else that had happened in a recent experience that I'd had. And one of my white friends and coworkers was like, well, did you, are you, did you say something to the leadership? And I remember looking at him like, no, I wasn't invited to speak. I'm not allowed to (laughs) speak, which is so part of my heritage. And so, and so part of my background. And I realized as much as I grew up very 
in white spaces. I can't get away from my upbringing. And so I'd love to throw it out to both of you too. Like, what are some of the cultural differences that you've noticed that you've had to figure out and adjust through and identify within yourself as well? What is the whiteness that you're dealing with? What is the gender thing that you're dealing with? So yeah, what are some cultural things that you've even realized? So I find that I always want to like learn something really well before I announce that I'm good at it. Right. And I know that it's a pretty common thing in American culture to kind of like lead with, I got this and then figure it out later. And I've always found that to be to my great disadvantage, because if you don't actively tell people that you know what, like, you know it, and they can completely trust you, they don't buy into it. Part of it is being a woman of color and having them like you, you don't have the benefit of the doubt, but if I don't vocalize what I'm good at, I am putting myself like I'm starting at the end of the line every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, there's a couple things that I was thinking was, um, I, before I didn't operate and I didn't take lead on things until someone passed me the mic. So mm-hmm. pass me the mic, then I can say something. Now you gave me permission. Okay, great. It's on. Now I know that you're okay with me speaking, but I, I used to operate where I didn't say things or didn't try to lead until I was given the role to do it, the permission to do it, but whatever. So that just wasn't, that, that was my normal position. And then also I operated under really collectivist mentality. And again, this is like, I can't tell what's race, what's gender, what's culture, you know, right. Together, right? Exactly. So I'm, I'm really collectivist when I, when I think about things. And so <laughs> I, I want to develop like, oh, oh, you don't, oh, I need to figure this out on my own. So I, and I need to push my way in and kind of like, I had to learn how to, yeah, square your shoulders and walk in and kind of force into places that I didn't feel comfortable forcing my way into because they didn't give me the mic. And so there's that, oh, I have to be really individual about thinking about things and not everyone's looking out for the good of everyone. Everyone's looking mm-hmm. out for the good of themselves. And so I need to figure out how to, play that game. So I, I used to say, I need to learn how to run with the big dogs because apparently I'm not a big dog. So yeah. <laughs> and I also wonder like how much of this is nurture versus nature. Like yeah. some of it is our culture, but then some of it is just being shut down mm-hmm. so many times. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there is something to say that like, I don't think we should take the full burden on ourselves of, oh no, I should be more. I should be more because so much of it is learned experience as well as cultural. Yeah. And that's the hard part. It's again, Joyce, what you were saying, like deciphering that it takes so much mental energy to parse it out and be like, Oh, okay. And it, and it's so situational. So it's like, just because you parsed it out in this one scenario, then you switch jobs and you're like, starting all over again with like similar cards, but not quite similar cards and different personalities of different people. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Sorry, I was going to add, and then you add the layer. So even when I'm parsing, right? So let's say I was comparing myself to another Filipino American brother, right? Like, okay, were we treated the same way? But the additional parts to it is, oh, but can he assimilate into whiteness better than I can is, you know, is he lighter skin? Is he, does he just flow easier in, in, in a, in a, in a white space more than I can? Because, you know, at least I'm, I'm in a point in my life where I just don't care to do that anymore as much. Yep. So there's all those other dynamics that are happening too. It's like, Oh, I can't even decipher that 
in comparison to someone akin to me because there's other layers you have to think about in it. Yeah, absolutely. Some of what we are talking about too, I think with women of color in particular, as you know, we're seeing online and seeing together, it's what you said, Joyce, this collectivist, this communal way of thinking of leadership now. So many of us are saying, we're going to buck the system. We're not going to play the white man game anymore where it's competition. It's going to be this, everyone is included. The whole inclusion rider thing in which if I can't do it, I'm not going to just be like, oh yeah, sorry, I can't go or I can't make it. I'm going to elevate five women of color and say, here are these other five women on top of me who you're thinking about inviting, you know? And it's been such a shift in my mental mode to go into these white spaces and say, your model isn't the best model. Like we're not doing it that way. And I'm not going to do it that way. And it takes risk, but it's, and it's dangerous because again, Nikita, what you shared, like they are playing the game that way. And so, so much of it, I feel like is we're now in this new pioneering space of how do we not play the game that way? while playing the game that way, you know? And so it's this really interesting mode I feel like we are entering into. I'm sure in the tech company as well. It's so doggy dog world. Yeah. I think the answer is like, this is kind of my answer for a later question you have, but like sponsorship. For example, when I was at a Christian company, I went in with very specific goals of wanting to address immigrant issues. And I was put in a tech role, even though I was told I would be able to switch over. And I spent a year waiting and waiting and waiting. And then finally, I just wrote what I needed to write on my own. And people like you picked it up and gave it attention. And I think it's this idea of people, us choosing to say, hey, we're going to pick up each other. And even if it's as simple as like reposting someone's Instagram stuff or uh, calling out different people, I we just hired someone at my job. And when I started, I was the only woman. It was, I was the only non-white person. I was the only woman. Most of the men were transplanted from Europe. So you can expect, like, I was like, well, this is a shocker when I got there. And we just hired a woman that does this outside of work. And she's a super powerhouse. LinkedIn is always like talking about her. But anyway, I've watched my own career change, having someone in a leadership position, even if they're not a person of color, but them acknowledging that I need to, when you say something, I need to back you up in those meetings. I need to hold people accountable for the things that you are deserving of. And when their opportunity arises, throw your name in the hat, right? So as we like, I almost feel like nobody else is going to do it. We can preach at them all we want about what is right, but we kind of have to be like, okay, we all have each other's back. And whether that's along the lines of women in the workplace or people of color in the workplace or even in Christian spaces. Cause I worked in church for 10 years. I don't have a PhD or any sort of academia around Christianity, but I volunteered in children's ministry for a really long time. And every single one of these things I experience in a super male dominated tech world is really no different than what you experience yep. in any white space. And I think it translates across and it doesn't have to be a stereotypical, like I'm the girl in it. So I will experience this. I think it's just part of the human experience as someone like me or someone like you guys. Absolutely. Joyce, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, along the lines of sort of the gatekeepers, right? For me, it was having other people be aware of me and pick me up. 
But I think I've, I've had to also have people who were willing to do the battles for me that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And that might actually be a little bit more on the patriarchy battles than my race or ethnic issues. It has been a bit of someone like seeing me, valuing me, and then taking me by the hand and saying, come on, let's go meet some people or let's go and kind of being referred into places, referred into places. The women of color lately in my world in the last year or two have been tremendous in my own growth because of that. Where before I was relying on white men usually to let that happen in the white places that I was working at, I had to rely on white men because I didn't have any women of color to rely on. You know, there just weren't any. I I was it. Mm -hmm. And so now that I'm surrounded a lot more and, and I've found my place with more women of color, it's been great because I've been able to rely on them now, which I couldn't do that before, literally. So that kind of leads to my final question as we're closing out. With self-care and surviving, sometimes we are forced because we have to pay the bills. So we have this job and we can't necessarily leave right away. So the obvious question would be, how long do you try to survive in this toxic white space before you lose your mind or you get sick or any of these things that could possibly happen? You have an emotional mental breakdown, like all these things. I mean, we've all, you know, for those of you who are listening, if you haven't seen the chart of woman of color enters into a white organization, goes through this pathway, you know, ends up exiting out, cycle starts all over again, new woman of color enters in, and it's just this continued perpetuation of this, what I call continued microaggressive leadership behavior. And the person on top never gets fired because the people exit out, right? And nothing gets really reported. So In that, Joyce, you mentioned finding this village and support system of other women of color. Are these women outside of this work environment that, you know, have you been able to find them within that somehow? For me, it's been outside external people that provide me support and keep cheering me on on the sidelines that I'm not crazy. So what other outside of, you know, for me, it's finding these other women, but what would you recommend would be some great self-care practices for folks who are stuck for now in these toxic white spaces that they're working in or involved with rather? Um, I found... I found women of color in where I'm at now, and that's been tremendously helpful for my day-to-day life. But I think in addition, finding other, in particular, national organizations within kind of my fields of interest and and the the places where academically and also, you know, as a practitioner, that's been really helpful is, is to find organizations and guilds that just automatically have people of color, women of color. And so that's kind of where I've been able to find some connecting points. And I've reached out to people like I've, I've reached out to other Asian women professors and asked them, you know, and actually Asian professors, both men and women and asked for help on things. So learning to ask has been really great for me and, and, you know, Facebook groups and things like that. And, and so I've just done it without shame now. I'm like, yeah, I need help. And so that's how I've been finding myself in those places more frequently. Mm-hmm. For me, I grew up in super white world. And so I didn't know how much I needed this until I, it was drastic and I really needed this kind of self-care and self-love. And part of it was, yeah, like finding 
people at work that you can trust and talk to. Sometimes they shouldn't be in your department, maybe. But the other thing is there's not always going to be other women of color at your workplace. And so for me, a really pivotal moment uh, when I was in college, I liked Tumblr a lot. Right. And when I started working, I found like one Tumblr of an Indian girl that was just reposting selfies of Indian women saying there's too many white men on Tumblr. Like I'm tired of seeing this. Let's just look at real Indian women or anyone that's part of the South Asian diaspora. And I remember it being life changing because I looked like them and I didn't know, like I was like, I had no clue what that would mean to me. So then I started following these girls with very normal faces and I started realizing that there's people like me that care about these same issues I care about. I got my undergrad in English studies around cultural issues, cultural geography, because this, I've always been passionate about this, but all the issues were not about my race. They were about mostly issues in America and Asian American issues aren't the main highlight of what was going on, especially in research. And so finding these brown communities, realizing that they were doing like the groundwork, like they might not have papers or anything like that, but they're doing real effective work that's affecting women's lives. So I got involved with them and then they kind of moved to Instagram because Instagram is way cooler now. (laughs) But I remember having to actively just like say, you know what, let me unfollow all these other people and Mm -hmm. retrain my mind. And through that, I've met people in real life that now are that support system where they are working in this field, are knowledgeable about these kinds of issues. So there's a place to go and we don't have to be best friends in every aspect, but it's good to have people that you can talk to that use that same vocabulary. Because sometimes I talk to really wonderful, well-meaning white or even people of color friends that just don't see these things the same way and you can love them and have them in your life. That's not a bad thing, but you also need the people where you can just be really vulnerable about, you know what, this is like, a, I don't want to deal with this anymore and like talk through it, give each other tips. And that's been just life-changing for me, especially in where I am now and giving me the courage to do things like leave organizations where I'm like, there is no way I can last here. And then also having other women encourage you to ask for things like the pay you deserve and other women of color being like, okay, here's what I did. This is what works for me. So anyway, I'm like rambling a little bit, but basically the community. And for me, because I don't have that many people of color around me, it started on the internet and it blended into my life a little bit more slowly. And so I think in that, it just still comes back to that. And also, even if it's not people that are part of this community, it's having your best friends be aware of this so that if you need a place to talk, your partner, your family members, having somebody that you have like a shoulder to cry on, because sometimes you're not going to do that with your internet friend. (laughs) You know what I mean? Letting the people know that that's an expectation and not an afterthought. So for a lot of people in dating life, I encourage people to say, this is a huge part of your life Mm -hmm. and you should expect this out of a partner, at least a sounding board for the things that you experience. And hopefully they are educated enough to be able to like talk you through some of that. Yes, obviously therapy and many other things are beneficial, but you also just need people around you that are on your side. Yep. Absolutely. And I have made this argument to my white colleagues so much because they try to villainize 
the internet, social media, as if it's this horrible thing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to push back because people of color, their salvation for their sanity has been online. Like so much of my community is part of that. And now, especially because there are more communication tools, there's Marco Polo, there's Boxer, there's like all these things where you can connect. There's Zoom where you can connect with your friends who may, I think in the past, you know, when you connect with somebody who's a person of color or woman of color, and then say they have to move or they go to a different location, you are still connected. You're still able to have these sacred spaces of dialogue. And yes, it might not be as phenomenal as having happy hour together where you can (laughs) celebrate and do some drinking together and lamenting and mourning and celebrating and all these things. But the fact that there are still these other spaces available is really key to building community that just weren't there before. It, it doesn't even have to be like reciprocal conversation, right? right. So I listened to a podcast, This Filipino American Life, and it, they're having a conversation with themselves, but like, I feel like I'm engaged in it. And it like grounds me because even though there's other women of color, there's literally three other Filipinos in my space right now. And so I, I need more than that. And so, yeah, being able to just even listen to a podcast and just get fed. Absorbing it. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, okay, there are other Filipinos around and they think and experience things very similar to me. So even though I can't get that reciprocal conversation with them, it, it still grounds me in my space, which is really helpful. It's representation, yeah. right? It's Absolutely. Ourselves. It's also really like I... I go to a lot of events for work and I am always the only brown person. And then this one older Indian lady will walk up to me and I'm like, is this what white dudes feel all the time? Because this woman sees herself in me and is so excited to talk to me and cares about my future. And it's like amazing. And I'm like, oh my God, people get to experience this every day. We don't. And like podcasts are, you know, the meme where the kid's sitting like next to a billboard of other kids, it's like listening to a podcast. Like, yeah, they're not really there, but they're there. And in that moment, it's about 45 (laughs) your friends. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I want to come back to internet for one second and tell the story. As a South Asian Christian that grew up in big white churches, I always felt super alone because the intersection of South Asian culture and Christianity is super patriarchal and also super pro, I mean, anti-black and like, like there's a lot of issues there. And that's just a lot of cultures. I'm just speaking on what I've experienced. And I always thought, oh, me and my sister, not like any other brown women that are in this space. And when I started Joy Homemade, all these, like I've, I moved my whole life, but all these people that found me, I don't have like a lot of followers or anything. That's not the point. But the people that did were people that identified with me. And for the first time in my life, it wasn't even me just reaching out to other people. It was like other people that are like, holy crap, you experience racism at white church. Like, can we, can we be friends? Like I've never <laughs> talked to anyone. Like even today I got like an essay Instagram message from someone that was like, I'm crying because I, I, I just tell my husband and nobody else believes me. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like we can talk sometimes like that's fine. Like it's this like, especially because it's so niche, right? Like there isn't a lot of South Asian or anything Asian in big, well-known churches. Yep. It's like the, the deeper you go in the levels of identity and social location, the 
deeper you need to find those other people and they might be across the country, but those like are like soul connections that totally. just are so valuable. I, yeah. Okay. End of rant. No, it's <laughs> so good. Joyce, do you want to ha- add anything? I think while Nikita is speaking, I was, I could see myself in that big church and being the only Brown person as well. And, and all those feelings. And then as you were talking, I remembered, Oh, this morning I got an email from my supervisor who said, Hey, can you email back with some suggestions on how we can make our program more diverse? (laughs) And uh, I I don't even know how to answer the email. I never answered it because I'm like, yeah, I, I don't even know where to, that's, yeah, that's already, that's problematic on so many levels. The issue started a long time ago and I can't answer you in one email. Google.com. <laughs> Sorry. You should send back a link to Google.com. <laughs> <laughs> send back. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, but it was indicative of, of what it means to be in large white institutions and what, what gets put on us is like, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, the brown person sitting in the large white church and being asked, well, how do we get more brown people in? I'm like, <laughs> be a neighbor to them, make them feel welcome. They'll show up. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, for me, it's like, well, as, as long as your board and staff all look, all oh, look yes. nice, and that's not going to take, like yeah. I can tell you anything I want, but it'll always be the same. You'll just have a really good revolving door. And that's, that's what I see in a lot of white Christian organizations, right? Oh, the revolving gosh. door of people of color, because they keep trying to be diverse. And it's like, yeah, but you haven't fixed the issues. All you did was bring in new, new blood and then burn them out. New blood, burn them out. And it's like, that's, I, yeah. <laughs> it's like a marketing tactic and not, it's, it's a, because well, they want to say that diverse and they want to hit these numbers or whatever it is, but it's never truly about welcoming someone into your family and taking them as seriously as putting them maybe in a position of leadership if they're, you know what I mean, for, with all the things that come with it or like celebrating them as an individual instead of like, look at, look at this number. I got this many people on this row, right? And, you know, I think Jesus some made some reference about whitewashed tombs. Something about that? Hmm. We shall end with that thought. I do want to add one thing to our audience members as they're listening. And this will be our final, you know, closing thought. It's a process. I think for myself, my own decolonizing, my own awareness. I also grew up very in white spaces. I used to say I feel more comfortable with white people than I do with Korean people. And a lot of that has been my own process of falling in love with myself, falling in love with my Koreanness, falling in love with all these things. My mom used to say growing up to me, you, you are Asian. Like you were born with this face. You will never be able to escape it. And I remember growing up thinking that's stupid, right? <laughs> like <laughs> I could do it. I could pass for white. I'm pretty much white. <laughs> and then I hit this point where I was like, Oh dear Lord, no, I so am not. Right? <laughs> yes. um, and, and, and then it was a process after that. So I just want to encourage our audience folks, you know, wherever you are on the scale of 
just coming to realization and then embarking on anger or processing where you're in these white spaces and you just want to burn everything down, or you're in this other space where you still haven't quite gotten there and you're like in la la land where you think everything is great. When the light bulb starts going off and you realize, or you're in the later of the process and you're starting to realize how do we change the system? I think the greatest thing that I we would want our audience to walk away with is that it's a process. It's a journey. It's this never ending thing until Jesus comes and fulfills and Shalom is established. This is something in the midst of diversity, in the midst of multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism, all these things that we have to deal with, you know, it is an ongoing issue that fluctuates, you know, and there will be good days and there will be bad days and there'll be great companies and there will be bad companies. So just know that you're not alone, that as you listen to this, you're not crazy. You're not the one that's causing problems, you know, trying to name these things and do some self-care and seek out community and don't try to fight and overthrow the system alone. So we just want to encourage, you know, our audience folks who are listening for that. Thank you so much to both of you. This has just been so great. And I'm so glad we solved the whole issue of what it means to work in toxic white spaces. You know, it's good. You know, Joyce, you write that email and snap, snap. We'll just solve all the problems. (laughs) Thank you so much to you both. This has been a great conversation. I hope we can continue it. You know, audience, if you want more tweet, text, you know, email, let them know that you want this conversation to keep going. We want to dive in even deeper to some more follow-up thoughts. So this is Centering with the Asian American Center at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Irene Cho. Please be sure to tune in next week um, for a new episode. Thanks so much. We're all about community at Centering. We invite you to join the conversation by sending your comments and questions at centeringpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to visit our website at centered.today for a list of other shows and resources. This episode is produced by Jason Chu, edited by Carl Catedral with music by Mark Redito. I'm your host, Irene Cho. And above all else, we want to remind you that God embraces all of who you are. 